Our New Testament reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. You can find it on page 830 in your pew Bibles. The Parable of the Talents. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he, who, and he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seeds. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to, them, give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's a privilege and honor to be here filling the pulpit today to talk about the parable of the talents. If you're visiting, my name is Chris Sutton, and I'm an elder here at One Ancient Hope, but welcome. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In the Two Towers, the middle book of the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy, there's a scene where Theoden is checked out in his role as king of Rohan. And Wormtongue, his servant, is feeding him lies via Saruman, one of the more powerful wizards who has actually turned bad. He's been seduced by Sauron, and he has been uh, giving the evil forces his support. Theoden is enthralled with Wormtongue's counsel, and Wormtongue has been slowly poisoning him with his words and with actual poison and bad advice. Gandalf knows that the resistance forces need Rohan, 
and its king to properly fight. So Gandalf, with others, goes to break him free from Saruman's control. Gandalf reveals that Wormtongue is bad, and he breaks Theoden free. So you have a king who was supposed to be fighting against evil forces, which was his work, and who didn't even have his sword on him. He couldn't trust the goodness of Gandalf, who was trying to set things right, because he was being fed lies, and he was being fed poison, and he was taking it into himself, and he was, he was buying into the lies. And he had taken the bait. He, uh, I'm admittedly pulling mainly from Peter Jackson's movie. I haven't gone back and read the text version of it again. But this, this is a decent picture. It's a decent story that parallels some of the themes from Genesis 3. Theoden isn't doing the work that he's supposed to be doing because he has trusted the enemy. He doesn't trust Gandalf, and as a result, he is not himself, and he lacks joy. These themes of trust and lies, work and disengagement and joy, uh, play a part in this parable. So let's kind of set up the parable. The parable is fairly straightforward uh, on the surface, but if you stick with it long enough, it has a beauty that keeps giving as you dig deeper and deeper into the story. Jesus is talking just to his disciples at this point. It's at the end of his teaching on the Mount of Olives, and he's been warning them about judgment. He's been encouraging them over and over to be ready. Jesus knows that he is going on a long journey and that his people will need to be prepared for the long run. He knows he's going to leave his people and that he won't be present soon enough. So he's encouraging them to persevere and to be faithful to the end. And he's talking to his disciples to tell them how they should behave in the time between his current presence on earth, his first coming, and his second coming. So in this time in between, what do we do with our time? Before we get started, what is a talent? It was a unit of money, and it was a weight. In this time period, it was 60 to 90 pounds, and this likely would have been gold, although the story doesn't really say that, it, that it's technically gold. Uh, the NIV actually uses bags of gold in their translations, so um, it, it's, it's likely that it's gold. This amount of money would have been like 20 years' worth of wages, 20 years' worth of wages for a single talent. Um, so you could translate it in today's money a couple different ways. You could take the 60 to 90 pounds of gold, or you could take 20 years of wages. You come up with different numbers, but um, it's a lot of money. It's... Uh, When you read the parable, don't think of a talent in terms of how we talk about talents today. Talents are like like a skill or an ability. That does factor into the story, but treat it as an actual amount of money working in an economy. Giving a talent was giving money or it was giving wealth or property. The parable is using money and conduct the parable is using money and conducting business to get us to think more broadly about the kingdom of God and how it works. Also recall that a parable is a story that lets the listeners distance themselves from their immediate circumstances. It takes them to a simpler, parallel story that allows them to hear and relate back to their lives. 
In John 2.22, it says that Jesus knew what was in his people's hearts. So here Jesus was getting his disciples ready for what was going to be a long period of time with him gone. He may have known that some of them would want to hole up in a bunker to wait for Jesus' return. So this story addresses that sort of behavior. And here we are 2,000 years later. We're still waiting, but we're still working. So let's go through this parable and consider it and what it is calling us to. And while we go through this parable, I want you to be asking a couple of questions, or at least thinking about these questions. One, is the master good or is the master bad? And a related sort of thing is, is he generous or is he stingy? Two, what are we supposed to do with our time and the gifts that he's given us? And three, which of these servants live well in the master's world? I'm indebted to the theologian Klein Snodgrass for kind of how I break down this retelling of the story. In the parable, it's just kind of all interwoven. So at the beginning, a man is getting ready to go on a long journey. He calls three of his servants together, and he entrusts them with enormous sums of money. None of these three servants are poor by any stretch. They have access to a lot of wealth. He recognizes each of their capacity to handle the wealth and make a profit, and he gives talents in proportion to their ability. So he's not giving them abilities. He has, in, his, in their creation, he has given people abilities and talents and skills, but here he's giving them money according to their abilities or according to their skills. Then he goes away on a long journey. They are now in charge of real and significant portions of his wealth, and the master trusts them with it. Kids, teens, this isn't like your parents sending you to the store with a $20 bill to get milk. This would be like your parents giving you $100,000 as they tell you that they're heading overseas for a couple months at the beginning of summer break. So imagine that. Imagine your parents write you a check for $100,000 the beginning of summer break, and they're entrusting you with this money. What do you do now? Do you take the money and run? Go across the border? Have a good time for a while? I mean, it's a lot of money. You can last a while on that. Uh, Or do you stuff it under your mattress because someone might come and try to swipe it? Or do you put it to work? Do you start buying and selling merchandise? Maybe cars, animals, land, houses? So that at the end, you have $200,000. So when your parents get back in August from their time, when your parents get back in August from their time overseas. So the first servant, it says, quickly puts the money to work. Uh, He does it by trading. He doubles his five talents. We don't know how fast that was. Was that 10 years? Was that six months? But it was a long time either way. He isn't just putting his money in a bank and a CD. He's not collecting 4 or 5% interest. Uh, he, it says he conducts business, which suggests that he's actually doing work with the money. It's not a passive, low-yield investment. Uh, he's taking a bigger risk than just collecting interest. Later in the story, we'll see why it's not just money sitting in a bank. The second servant does the same thing with the two talents. He acts according to his ability, according uh, to his skills, and he doubles the value of the master's wealth. 
But the third servant buries his one talent in the ground to hide it. There's no judgment at this point on if this was good or bad. You can make some guesses. And also, one other, uh, one other thing, uh, we're using the word master a lot. The word can be kind of fraught because of American history and what uh, American history did with slavery. Um, the word master is just translating the word curious, which could also be rendered as lord. It's also translated that way. So lord, master, curious. It's someone who's in charge of an estate, a property, something like that. Now, a long time later, the master comes back, and he's settling accounts. Maybe this is many months. Maybe it's many years later. But we don't know when. He returns with the purpose of seeing how his wealth has been treated. Kids, now it's August, and your parents are back home from Europe, and they want to see how you've invested and what kind of money you've gotten, or what kind of return you've gotten on that $100,000. The servant with five talents comes boldly before his master, and now he has ten talents. The master heartily commends him with, well done, good and faithful servant. The master is delighted. You were faithful with a little. Now here's a lot of responsibility. His five talents are worth millions of dollars in today's money. At least millions of dollars. Enter into the joy of your master. His participation was a good thing. A doubling of the initial sum is welcomed here, and the storyteller isn't shy about it. He isn't shy about how he commends and how he promotes the servant. This servant clearly did well. The second servant has less to start, but his return is in proportion with the first servant. He is heartily promoted and commended. The master calls him good and faithful. This is another enormous sum of money. But he also calls this just a little. So it gives you a sense of the proportion of the master's world. He's just given them a little. And he's going to give them more responsibility as he goes along. So now we're up to the third servant. And this is the biggest part of the parable. He immediately calls the master a hard, some translations call it a harsh man. It's strong language right out of the blocks. And we don't have the backstory. We don't know what happened to this guy to get him to this point. So is this servant right? Servant number three proceeds to accuse the master of getting the benefits of wealth from places he didn't have the right to reap the benefits. He's accusing the master of unjust gain, which would have moral, ethical, and legal implications. These are serious charges. He hides the money out of fear, but he confidently addresses his master. Look at the certainty that the servant speaks with. He knows the master is hard. He knows the master is hard. That's his starting point. This story makes you pick a good or a bad master. You can't have a little bit of each, probably. A faithful or an unfaithful servant. So which is it going to be? You don't get to be neutral in this story. Then we get a little bit of insight into his thinking. I was afraid. I hid your talent in the ground. I was afraid. I hid your talent in the ground. When you hear, I was afraid... I hid what comes to mind. 
Seriously, what, what comes to mind? Genesis 3, right? Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a good connection. Um, I think it's a very deliberate connection as well. There's a bunch of overlap. I won't actually dig back through Genesis 3, um, but you've already heard it read, and you can kind of you can fill in some of the gaps there. And don't forget about this last phrase. You have what is yours. The NASB says you still have what is yours. How does this servant relate to the master's world? Is he a willing, joyful participant? Or is he a bystander? Does he honor the gift in the master's economy? Or does he throw it away? The master is not pleased at all. He's actually quite upset. You lazy and wicked servant. You knew I was getting unjust gain? Well, you could have just put your talent in the bank to collect interest. Interest was not the first option for Jewish society uh, in in this uh, time period. So the master is actually saying that even this less desirable option, collecting interest, would be better than not doing any work. The master could have at least received interest, and that would have been better than nothing. The third servant has his talent taken from him and given to the servant with ten. Whoever has more will be given. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. What do we do with that? Is the master bad? Maybe servant three has a point. This seems harsh. Let's keep going. So verse 30 escalates the whole situation. The servant is now worthless and to be thrown into the outer darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth. You need to pause and kind of think about this. Who is the master? What kind of world is he running? Is he good? Is he generous? Is the servant right? And as I've said before, you have to pick a side here. The master is good good and just and right in his judgments, or the servant uh, knows something and he has interpreted things correctly, and he actually knew that the master was unjust and hard. There isn't much middle ground here, so let's look for clues. Let's kind of quickly retell from the master's side and then about the servant. The master is leaving on a jet plane for a long trip. That's anachronistic, by the way. And he's entrusting lots of his wealth to his servants. He gives them large sums of money. He doesn't give talents randomly. He knows his servants. That means he's been paying attention to them over the years, and he appropriately gives them talents according to their ability. He trusts them long enough to he trusts them enough to leave them for a long time by themselves without his presence, trusting they'll stick around. Two of the servants actually do what he hopes, and he commends and he rewards them. When he comes back, he doesn't abandon his property or people. He actually gives all the money back to the two servants who honored the gifts. We know this because later he gives the one talent to the servant with the ten. If he had ten, that means the servant retained the wealth that he was given and what he earned. So there's, it's not, it's not stingy. I mean, this is millions of dollars. Even more, the master gives these servants 
much more responsibility as he commends them, and he calls this, these talents, he calls that just a little. All this wealth is being put to work. All this wealth being put to work was a taste of what was to come if they worked faithfully. They are welcomed into the joy of their master. He is calling them into this bigger and better life with increasing responsibility. He lets them participate in his economy that is growing. And he wants them working while he's away. He gives them the chance of meaningful work and conducting his business with the opportunity to take on more responsibility. This is how the kingdom of God works. Now what about servant three? The servant received a generous gift that he wasn't owed. The master didn't owe him anything. And he did nothing with it. He hid the gift out of fear. He leveled bold accusations at his master, questioning his master's very integrity. He thought he was on neutral ground, just holding on to the gift that then he would give back without any losses or any gains. He took no risk. He didn't participate in his master's economy. Where does this servant fit in the kingdom? This parable is once again telling us how the kingdom of God works. How do you interpret this then? You kind of have to do interpretive backflips to say that that the third servant has a good handle on reality and that his accusations and that his judgments are accurate. It sure doesn't look like he's living a full and flourishing life. You see good and gracious gifts entrusted to people who aren't owed the gifts. Two of the servants, because they trust the master, work with the grain of the master's economy. They participate, they engage, they invest, they trade, they do business, and one just sits on the generous gift he was given. And he sits on it for a long time. In the following section, we'll consider trust and work and joy. But before we do that, let's address false prosperity gospel thinking. This parable isn't a formula saying you should go get a bag of gold, invest it, and God will double it for you. That's not the point here. Um, And that would be a significant misrepresentation of what's going on here. Our work in this world is already frustrated and creation is groaning. Many of us may be successful to some degree in this life, but it's more important to faithfully do the work that God has given us. The rewards may come partially in this life, but we're waiting, we're waiting on it in the new creation. Nothing good here in this life is ever lost. I know people that have served God faithfully for many years, and they haven't seen the results. They haven't seen the rewards in their ministry. And by all metrics, they have done the work of, um, they have done their work faithfully before God. Trust is one of the best things. So we're switching up to trust now. Trust is one of the best things when you trust someone who is trustworthy. And in our world, this can be complicated because the ones we trust can be untrustworthy people. That's entirely a possibility. And because the ones who do the trusting also don't trust well. Uh, I want to thank philosopher and professor Esther Lightcap Meek for help with this 
this whole section on kind of trust and knowing. Um, in the end, if you have breath in your body, you will trust someone, some idea, some philosophy, or something for your life. It's inevitable, and it's built into your very nature. All you can do is decide who you will trust. To not trust is to not be human. If you don't trust anything else, then at least you're trusting your own judgment. So you trust something. So how do you trust well or rightly? First, the object of your trust must be reliable. And a problem with trust is that you have to trust at the start. You can't guarantee that the object of your trust is reliable when you don't yet fully know the object. So learning to trust is a knowing venture. You know someone or something. To know someone or something means that you have to get to know that person because you don't know them yet. So there's actually risk involved. You take a leap of faith. Here's an example. I like planting, so uh, I planted 800 cloves of garlic several years ago, and then I planted 1,600 cloves of garlic the second year. And the third year, I planted around 3,100 cloves of garlic. This year, I planted almost none, but there's reasons for that. (laughs) At the beginning, I didn't know anything about how these plants behaved. I trusted I could know it, and I wanted to know how garlic planting worked. With experience, And actually doing the work, I came to know how to successfully grow and multiply my garlic harvest. There are hundreds of little details I would have never known had I not engaged in the work and participated and learned. Some of my learning sources were talking to other people who had already done it. I also read literature from people and companies that know a lot about garlic planting. So it wasn't just me figuring out all on my own. There's a community of people who are really into the nuances of how to produce the very best garlic. So I know a bit about the topic, but there are real experts out there who can go really deep. Now, if one can get nerdy around knowing plants and garlic, how much more a person? Plants are part of God's good creation and necessary for our life. Beautiful to the eye and good for eating, as Eve said, and that's actually true. But people are the image of God himself, and God has filled his good world with lots of people. We have many billions at this point. At one point, I didn't know my wife, but I knew I wanted to get to know her. It took trust both ways to know, and it took risk getting married You don't have certainty that the other person is going to work out 100% when you first meet someone because you are limited in your perspective, and that's okay. There was a point of initial trust, and then there is a lifetime of growing in that trust and in that love. And then this marriage trust is expressed in a covenant between a man and a woman. So there's there's steps that you take along the way in, in your trust. If we can know a person, a creature, how much more the one who creates, the one who gives life in the first place. Everything we know about Christ says that he is good. And Christ is the face of God, and he represents the fullness of God fully. He is reliable. He wants the very best for our life. He's consistent, and he's steady. 
He made all things, and they are all good. In Little Gidding, read the broader section sometime, but in Little Gidding, T.S. Eliot says, love is the unfamiliar name behind the hands that wove. When we trust the creator, we get access to that love. We participate in his life. Remember, you are trusting your life for something. If nothing else, then you are trusting you. You know that you are not the measure of all things, though. No matter what your standards are, you know that over time, you don't live up to your own standards. You're not enough to be at the center of your own existence. You know that you need more than yourself. And to be clear, when we talk about trust, we're talking about faith. Faith ends up being sometimes the more religious word, and sometimes it can, uh, it's it's a great word, but I think it's helpful to think of it in terms of trust. Uh, It just gives us another way to think about this whole process. Faith is the beginning of knowing anything. And it doesn't matter if the topic is science or knowing God. Faith is where you start in all knowing ventures. Why not trust the one who made everything and made everything good? To trust at the start takes some risk. But you'll have people around you who have been walking this path for a while. They can give you an idea of what trusting Christ for your life is like. There are good authors who can testify to a life lived in the presence of God. There's good living authors and there's good authors from many hundreds of years ago that can testify to that. So we have evidence over time. There are reliable sources, but it takes living in a community with others who have been faithful in the same direction. At 46, I can say that my life is much better because I trust Christ. And I could tell you stories. I know that this journey is worthwhile to walk with this group of people here at One Ancient Hope over a period of many years. The message of Christ and the good news has come to me in many ways and at various times. It came through my parents. It came through my grandparents. Then men and women at my boarding school in Brazil. Various people in Colorado Springs. Some people in college. It's come through my wife. It's come through Michael Langer. Ian Hard, Didi Wong, Matt Tinkin, Rachel Schunk talking about practicing spiritual disciplines, Fred Skiff, Lorene talking about uh, attributes of God, Pastor Will, and many others who have told the good news that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Saying that my life is better is not saying that I'm richer in terms of money or that life is always easier. It's better because the more we are in Christ, the fuller and more substantial we become in a world that's unkind to humans, that's harsh on women, on children, and on men. And it diminishes the image of God that's stamped on us. We consistently hear messaging that is as present as the air that we breathe, saying that we are autonomous saying that our bodies are plastic, that we are our own masters, that we need to listen to and embrace all of our feelings because those feelings define us and the only reliable source, and that they are the only reliable source of truth. These 
are some of the lies being whispered in our ears uh, through media, through, um, through all kinds of sources around us. Don't take the bait. Now, the beauty of this world is that we get what we want in the end. Think about that. We get what we want in the end. The terrifying thing about this world is that we get what we want in the end. And I'm just pulling right out of Romans 1 here. When God's judgment happens, it is God giving people over to their desires, to what they really, really want. This is why it matters what we trust in, because what we trust is what we'll love. And what we love determines where we will spend our time and energy, where we give our attention, and even how we daydream. When we're united with Christ, we get his whole good world. All things, as Paul puts it. When we stay in Adam, we lose everything. Even what we have left in Adam will be taken away from us. It's a sobering thought. This this takes us to work and how we participate in the master's good world. The beginning of this parable doesn't say what the master's expectations are, but it quickly becomes clear based on the servant's actions and the rewards and punishments that participating in his economy in a way that multiplies the gifts is important to how the master's uh, kingdom works. Adam and Eve received good works as a gift from God in creation before the fall. So work is woven into the fabric of creation. It's not an accident that happens after the fall. It's part, it's part of God's good world. Now the problem is that our work is frustrated and broken. You don't really even need scripture to make this observation. Broken authority structures, broken relationships, work that is sometimes meaningless, work that doesn't fit your skill set, work that doesn't pay enough to live on sometimes, and I could go on. Genesis is telling us why our work is broken. It came out of initial distrust of God, believing lies that asked if God was holding out on us, if there was some good part of creation that he wasn't going to give to us. Because of this, our work will likely involve sweat and tears and pulling weeds. To those who are mothers, you know that childbirth, which we call labor, can be very, very hard. Switch up to Ephesians here. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. God has actually prepared work for us. Those servants were supposed to be working for their master, but the one opted out. If we have taken that step, that risk of trusting God, then we'll already know that our work has purpose, even if it is hard and broken. We'll put our best effort into redeeming that work, honoring our bosses, and at the end of the week, laying down our work and resting, knowing that God is making all things new. In his redeemed world, because of his work on the cross, we can work with joy. The tears and the sadness, the sweat and the weeds will one day be gone. One day we will be able to do our work rightly before God. 
and our work will be productive like these first two servants. What is the work that you have been given to do? Who is your neighbor next to you that you've been called to serve? What resources do you have available to you that you can share in the One Ancient Hope and Iowa City community? And then what skills and talents do you have? Are you called to speak and teach? Can you serve people? Do you have resources to share with your neighbors and throughout the church community? There is much work that we share here at One Ancient Hope. But much of it will be specific to you and your family as well. And you have to kind of go and think through that. In this life, being faithful in your work frequently won't translate to increasing value. At least not that you can see in the here and now. If you do it in faith in Christ, then then sometimes we wait knowing that God will make all things new. But nothing good is lost in this world. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, your labor is not in vain. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So we're talking about joy just a little bit here at the end. Who wouldn't want this said of your work? Well done, good and faithful servant. How do we find joy? We don't find joy by looking into ourselves. You can probably find a little bit of joy for a while, but it won't be lasting. You won't be happy staying there. The lasting joy comes from a gift from our Father in heaven. It comes from participating in his life and in his work. And we can't construct this joy either. We find it in working and serving others and serving God. If we look to ourselves to find this joy, we are going to live in a very small and shrinking world. So where do we find it? The start is humbling yourself before the creator. I believe, help my unbelief. You remember that little piece? I think it's from Mark. It is knowing that you can't define your life. It is understanding your brokenness and your sin. If you start by knowing that the master is hard, you will end up in isolation with lies and with accusation. If you read Genesis, uh, you have Adam and Eve and their initial sin, and then you have Cain, then you have Lamech, and you have Noah. And sometimes this is called the echoes of the fall, and you see it cascading and snowballing and growing the the effects of sin. Um, So that isolation, those lies, the accusation, they will grow, and you end up with clusters of sin. You end up with a whole set of things. But if you start by humbling yourself, you have all of God's good world available to you. It's a narrow path that leads right up to the cross. And after that, the world opens up. Jesus died to take on your sin of pride, trusting yourself, of believing the lie. He loves you in such a way that he gave up his life. He sacrificed himself on the cross. He took that unbelief and distrust. It was nailed to the cross. When you trust him, you take on his goodness, his righteousness, 
And he takes on your unbelief, your sin, and your guilt. This is called imputation. This is the way to life and joy. When you've gone this far, it means that the Spirit of Christ has already been working you to regenerate your life and to give you the ability to trust properly. This is new life. This is the start of joy. This is faith. Don't bury your gifts. Trust that Jesus is good. Trust that Jesus is the good Lord that he says he is. He has been faithful and true throughout the years. And anybody who has walked with Christ for a while can tell you stories. Go and ask them stories. Don't bury your gifts. Instead, bury your pride. Bury your foolish pride. Your pride will isolate you from your family, from your friends, from your church. It'll isolate you from God, from life and joy. Your pride and distrust will destroy your ability to live properly in God's good world. It'll lead to lies. It'll lead to deceit. It'll lead to accusation. You will end up hiding in fear like our first parents. You'll shrink. You'll become smaller. And it'll lead to trusting or worshiping in the wrong thing. In the Deathly Hallows at King's Cross, Harry and Voldemort are both in an in-between place after Voldemort tries to kill Harry. Harry is whole in that scene in the movie, and Voldemort is just a shadow of himself. In the movie, he's actually a horrifying, shrunken creature. This is very, very deliberate storytelling by J.K. Rowling. Voldemort has spent his, uh, all of his days hating and in fear. And in that storyline, he has fractured his soul seven different ways. All we see is the last All we see is the last part which is unrecognizable to his original glorious image. This is just a picture of the long-term effects of a life lived in a particular direction. And remember that in Romans 1, you get what you want for joy or for horror. Now come back to our story. Christ's death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, they are our way to life. He took on our sin. If you have further questions about what it means to trust Christ, come and talk to one of us. Pastor Will, to one of the elders. There are good women in the church who you can reach out to who know Christ and know his work. Trust in Christ so that you can participate in his work. Trust in Christ to discover the joy of a loving father looking into your eyes and saying, well done, Good and faithful servant, you have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, give us the ability to trust your word. Give us the joy that only comes from trusting in your work and what you've done. Lord, help us to learn how to participate in your good world and in your life. Amen.